So the next reading is uh, Mark 12, and it's 28 to 31. So I'll just give you a second to get that. So Mark 12. Cool, so verse 28. Uh, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's the word of the Lord. Well, our word for this morning, this talk, is love. And I'll have to say, I feel preeminently unqualified to stand before you and speak about this topic. Um, If there's ever a portion of scripture I feel like I have so much area to grow in, it's this one. But we'll trust that God's word and his spirit will challenge us all and show us how we all need to grow in love. There once was a man named Dit. He lived in the land of the Punjab in India. The Hindus called him an untouchable. He was short, dark, and lame. He was a laborer in the village and also bought and sold hides. He was in good standing with the Chura caste there. One day, Dit heard about Jesus Christ, the Savior. He heard about how Jesus Christ, the sinless incarnation of God, had gone about doing good, had given men wonderful teaching, and had died on the cross that men might obtain salvation. Jesus said, I want that kind of Lord, one who loves sinners and saves them from sin and ignorance and teaches them the truth about God. Dit set at work at once before seeing any padre or pastor to learn about the Christian religion. He visited a nearby Christian and from that Christian he learned the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. He committed them to memory Then he walked 25 miles to the mission house in Silicot and said to the padre there, I wish to be baptized. The padre said, stay here in Silicot for a few months. Attend church, learn further, then I will baptize you. But Dit said, sir, I already know all that you require for baptism. I cannot stay. I have work to do. My family is expecting me to return. Please baptize me now. The Padre examined him again and finding that Dit really did know the commands, the creed, and the the Lord's Prayer, baptized him. The Padre then said to him, you are a new Christian. If you go back to your village, people will laugh at you and persecute you and put you out of the caste. You had better stay here with us. We shall give you a job and you can earn your living here. Bring your wife here too, and she'll be a Christian. 
but did said immediately, No, Padre Sahib, I must go back to my village. I have not abandoned my people. I love them. I am not a coward to run away and become a Christian. I didn't become a Christian for a job. I have my own work. I shall go back and bring all my people to Christ that they too might be saved. Did, did return to his village and he did receive much opposition and persecution first from his brothers, then his wife, and then from the whole village. They told him, you are ruined. You have disgraced us. You're a fool. They abused and ridiculed him. But Dit remained firm in his new faith. He continued to love his family and to witness to them. Slowly, people started to respond in faith. First, his wife, then his daughter, then a husband and wife who were neighbors, then four more people from the village. Slowly, more and more people responded to the love and testimony of Dit. 11 years after the conversion of Dit, 500 churas had, had become believers and were part of the church. By 1900, over half of the churas in the Silicon District had become Christians. And by 1915, all but a few hundred of the churas had become Christians. In the life of Dit, we see the power of love. Dit was drawn first to a God of love, a God who died for him to provide salvation. Then his love for his own people empowered him to be willing to suffer much in order to give them the chance to hear this good news about Jesus. He modeled well for us the sermon we had just before morning tea. He knew that he was blessed so that others could be blessed with this salvation. And we're going to see from Scripture um, that in his life, love was a motivating factor. Roland Allen, a well-known British missionary, said, missionary zeal does not grow out of intellectual belief or out of theological arguments but out of love. Now, if you come to SNBC, we hope to impart to you a missionary zeal. We hope to give you strong theological foundations. But all of that gets neutered if you do not have love. We see that in the life of Jesus, this teacher of the law comes to him and says, of all the commandments, which is the greatest? Now, the scribes of Jesus' day declared that there were 248 positive commandments of God. Commands like love God. Commands stated in the positive. 248, that's the number of members of the human body. So you look at the human body, you think of all those positive commands God gives us. There are 365 negative commands, like do not lie. The same as the number of days in the year. So you combine those together and it's 613, 
which if you spell out in Hebrew, uh, the 10 commandments, there's 16, uh, 613 commands, or 613 letters, sorry. Um, the same as the number of commands in the Bible. Now, when we were in Israel, we learned that uh, Jewish people in the past and even today, they associate God's law with a pomegranate. Because did you know that there are 613 seeds in a pomegranate? Now, if you doubt that, we're going to give that as a task to Marshall. You're going to buy him five pomegranates. You're going to have him count each one and see <laughs> if each one... It was, it's a traditional rabbinic tradition. It actually does depend on the size of the pomegranate. <laughs> I, I did count. <laughs> they don't all have 613. Um, but this teacher of the law is asking Jesus, of, all, of these 613 commandments in the Bible, in the Old Testament, which is the greatest? Jesus starts to answer his question with quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds to Deuteronomy 6.5 he adds Leviticus 19.18, which says to love your neighbor as yourself. As often is the case, Jesus doesn't remain within the boundaries that the religious leaders are trying to put him in. They want an answer in a box, and Jesus won't give them an answer in a box. Jesus always is frustrating the religious leaders because he's always coloring outside their lines. It drives them crazy. He wants to know which is the greatest commandment and Jesus answers by giving him two commandments. Because the truth is, you can't separate the truth. It's impossible to love God and not love people we see that Jesus brings this out later in John 14, or 1 John 4.20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. You can't do it. You can't love God and hate your brother or sister. For whoever does not love his brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Jesus tells the religious leader that the most important command is to love God. But in reality, to love God, you have to also love people. Now this is what's most important to God. It's the greatest commandment. So it should be what's important to us as well. To love God and to love people. So to look, before we get to look at what does that mean, actually look like. Let's look at how the Bible describes love. So turn to 1 Corinthians 13 with me. It's a very special passage. The very first time I met my wife was at a university 
uh, Christian club walked in and that day they handed you a piece of paper. So I took my piece of paper and I went and sat down and they said, there's a number on your paper, that's what group you're gonna be in. So I looked at my number, I went to group number seven and my wife was leading the Bible study that day for that group. It's the first time I met her. And she taught on 1 Corinthians 13. Now, if you ever get to meet her, she's a great teacher. So I applied what I learned. <laughs> and we got married a year and a half later. So we start off with 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only, only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love, our life is just noise. Our life has, makes no impact on people. It bears no fruit if we don't have love. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. No matter how impressive your ministry skills are, or how impressive your ministry appears, it's nothing without love. Verse three, if I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You can do incredibly sacrificial ministry that gives you no reward if you do not have love. Verses four to seven goes on to give positive relationship building traits that love displays. Patience, kindness, rejoicing with the truth, hope, perseverance. Mabel Green was a WEC Australian missionary who went to Brazil in 1929. She only served for six months before she died. And yet in that short time, she hadn't even learned the language, but in that short time, her love made a deep imprint on at least one person. At her funeral, this was written about her funeral, little Edith, the Indian girl who Mabel Green had in a sense fostered while among, was amongst the mourners at the graveside. Little Edith had been orphaned as an infant and when her, mother was, when her mother was shot, she climbed on the knee of Pat Sims, another WEC missionary, who was soon to leave for furlough and she whispered in his ear, while you're away, get me another white mother like the last one for she loved little girls. Mabel Green didn't know the language, but her love was communicated to little Edith and made a big impact on her. Verses four through seven also gives some, on the flip side, negative relationship destroying traits that love avoids. Love does not envy or boast, doesn't have pride or selfishness or anger. 
Love doesn't keep record of wrongs. Love delights in evil. Or does, it does not delight in evil. <laughs> you heard that correct, right? <laughs> Love does not delight in evil. And then verse... Uh, seven goes on to talk about four always of love. That love always has these four traits. Love always protects. Now this doesn't mean the kind of love that a mother or father has that wants to protect their children from harm or information that they're too young to process. Love certainly does that. But this word in the original language means something different from that. It means to cover over with silence, to hide or to conceal. So it, love means when someone makes a mistake or has a fault, that you don't share those errors that you've experienced at their hand or the faults that you see in them. In the NIV, Love protects means that love protects the reputation of the other person. People's failures and faults, they're safe with you. You're not going to go broadcast them to other people. You're going to protect that person's reputation. This is one of the many expressions of love that Kathy, my wife, has for me. She, know, better than anyone else, knows my greatest failures, my greatest faults, weaknesses, my insecurities. But I know they're safe with her. She doesn't pass them on to other people. She leaves that to me to do. And sometimes I do. And sometimes the insecurities are too big to share with others. But I know that they're always safe with her. They're, I'm protected with her in that way. Love always trusts. The word in the original language means it, love believes all things. And that's why it gets translated that way in the ESV, the New American Standard, the King James. But it doesn't mean that love believes things that are obviously false or they're untrue. It means that love gives other people the benefit of the doubt that you believe, you're not gonna think the worst of them. You're gonna believe the best in them. Even if they say something and it comes out a little wrong, you're gonna think, oh, they're having a rough day. You're gonna think the best of them. Love always hopes. Love never gives up on another person. It never writes another person off. Love never despairs in a person. You always have hope that by God's grace, they're going to get there. And finally, love perseveres. The Greek word here means to remain. Love never ends the relationship. Love always sticks with that person. Love always sticks with God. Love is being faithful to God and being faithful to the relationships you have. Now, this is a bit of what love is. It's a brief definition of love that Paul gives. But what does it look like in daily life to love God and to love people? Let's first look at loving God. Love God. Now, is that not a massive topic? All three of my talks 
here and all the sermon series, all the sermons at SWEC for the next five months could be on loving God and we would barely scratch the surface. So I'm only going to pick one topic, God's love language. Have you read the book, The Five Love Languages? Did you know God has a love language? He tells it in John 14. Now, John 14 has been a particularly precious passage to me the past month. Jesus is preparing his disciples because he's about to leave them. He shares with them to not let their hearts be troubled or to be afraid. They will one day be with him for all eternity. And until that day, he's going to leave them the Holy Spirit, who's going to be their comforter and their helper. Now, in the midst of all these words of comfort that he's speaking to his disciples, it's as, it's as if he's asking them, now, would you comfort me? And he tells them how to do that by telling them what it means to love God. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And now, just in case they're not getting it all in the affirmative, he tells them in the negative what it looks like. If anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. It's pretty clear, isn't it, from this passage. God's love language is obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. Perhaps this is why so often the great command, the great commandment gets linked with the great commission. If we love Jesus, we will obey him and his commandments. And the last commandment we see in the Gospels is Jesus saying, go and make disciples of all nations. If we love him, we're going to obey that. And not, iron not ironically, it's also the best way we show our love for people. In John 13, verses 34 through 35, we read, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone know, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Leslie Newbigin was another famous British missionary. And Leslie Newbigin said, the church is a hermeneutic of the gospel. Now, I don't know why theologians always speak like this. <laughs> Who knows what a hermeneutic is? But if you go to Bible college, you'll learn hermeneutics is the art of interpretation. So if you go to Bible college, you'll take a hermeneutic class that will teach you how to understand and interpret the Bible. So he's saying the church helps particularly the lost world understand and interpret the gospel. And that's because when non-Christians see Christians interacting together, people who are from different economic status, different racial backgrounds, 
people who would not normally even interact with in society, when they come together in the church and they love one another, that gives them insight to what the gospel is all about, that God would love us. Now, love one another, unfortunately, too often is difficult for followers of Jesus to do. Even strong, mature believers struggle with this at points in their life. Are you at a point like that now in your life? Do you have someone in your life, a brother or sister in Christ, who is particularly difficult for you to love at this point? Now, I'm sure if there is, they're not members of SWEC. It's probably Christians you know from some other venue. Uh, but when we were studying at Bible College 30 years ago, we heard a very sad statistic. We heard 30 years ago that the number one reason missionaries left the field prematurely is because of um, relationship conflict with other missionaries. Unfortunately, just a few months ago, I heard the same statistic. 30 years later, it's still the number one reason that missionaries leave the field earlier than they were intending. Well, Mabel Green, we talked about her. Uh, she saw this in her brief six months on the field. This was written about her as a spiritually and relationally perceptive person. Mabel Green was acutely aware of the potential for the devil's strategies of discord to undermine the work of the gospel. One particularly prob problematic relationship between two colleagues, meaning two missionaries, drove her to frequent prayer for reconciliation. They're not pulling together, she said. One feels it ke keenly. And then she said with dismay, oh, for a spirit of unity, bring unity again, Lord, for otherwise, how can they work? How can they minister effectively? As you have loved one another, so you must, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now the context of John 13, when he's writing this, is at the beginning of the chapter, he's washing the feet of the disciples. He's telling them about his upcoming death for all mankind. And, in, um, and then he gives that right before he gives this command. He tells them that he's going to die for them. This sacrificial love he's going to give to them to provide their salvation. And then he follows it up with, as I have loved you so you must love one another. With this command to love one another, we're to follow Jesus' example of sacrificial love, even if it means death for the benefit of another person. Now this, when he says a new command, the reason it's new is not the actual command, but the quality of the love. Remember in the Old Testament, how are we supposed to love? Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now Jesus takes this to a whole deeper level. You need to love more than you love yourself. You need to love as Christ loved us. 
During World War II, Caspar Ten Boom, who was the father of Corey Ten Boom, was talking to a pastor and asking him if he would hide this Jewish mother and her young child in his house. And the pastor said, no, I can't do that. If I, if I get caught, I could get killed. And Caspar Tenbrun replied, you say we could use, lose our lives for this child. I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. Well, Casper did die for hiding Jews, as did his daughter Betsy, his son Wilhelm, and his grandson Kick. And for him it was a great honor that they could give their life in love of another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Are we prepared to love with this kind of love? What's even more penetrating is that when Jesus said this, as I have loved you, he was speaking to the 12 disciples, one of which was Judas, whom Jesus knew was going to betray him. So Jesus modeled for them that we're to love, to that kind of sacrificial love, we're to do that even to our enemy. In Matthew 5, 43-48, Jesus said, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what good are you, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Jesus gives, in this passage, one specific example of how to love your enemies, and it's to pray for your enemies. And in verse 45, he gives another way, common grace. Even the people that hate God, God still gives them sun and rain for their goodness, to grow food, to feed them. He still gives them good things for their benefit and well-being. What better way to do good to our enemies than by sharing the gospel with them? Are there people in your lives right now that you would view as an enemy? If so, are you praying for them? Are you doing good to them? Now, as I reflected on my life, I, th I can honestly only think of two times in my life where I felt like I had a real enemy. One was when I was in the Navy, Warrant Officer Hay Hayes. He hated Christians, but because I was a Christian, I got his hatred as well. And then there was uh, someone in Turkey, 
who was trying to divide our church and um, was an enemy of all of the leaders in the church. Now I have to say, for both those two men, I don't feel like I excelled at praying for them or doing good to them. So I'm going to turn to another source to give you a good example of how to love your enemies. It's a story of a group called the YY. And the gospel came to them, they came to faith, and they immediately started thinking of all of the people groups around them that didn't know this good news, and they started taking the gospel to them. One of those people groups, the Atrawari, were extremely difficult to love. I'll tell you a bit about their journey, the YY's journey to take the gospel to the Atrawari. They immediately began um, reaching out to these tribes at great sacrifice of comfort and energy, giving their own food, opposition, and they saw great fruitfulness in their efforts. Many came to faith. But one tribe, the Atrawari, renowned for their vicious anger, murder, and self-centeredness, presented a monumental challenge to the YY. The YY prayed for many years for God to open a door for them to share Jesus with the Atrawari. Finally, after years of prayer, a group of seven YY went on a long journey to try and find them. They met a group of 20 or more Atrawari, all who had bows and arrows pointed at them. The Atrawari took everything that the YY had, beads, knives, fish hooks, combs, but they were not satisfied. They ripped off their shirts, ripped off their pants, emptied their canoes of hammocks and ouchies. Ouchies were the basket, it was like their backpacks. It was the baskets that they carried their food in. When the Atrawari were convinced that they had nothing left to take, they let the seven YY go in their canoes. They had lost a lot, but their first encounter with the Atrawari, they had their first encounter with the Atrawari, and they even wrote down a few Atrawari words that they had heard. I don't know what they were, probably give me that was uh, one of them. In one of their early encounters, the Atuari men came up and hugged the YY and kissed them like they would kiss their own wives. Then they took them into their homes where the YY saw the clothes and items that were evidently trophies of recent conquests and were reminded of the murderous nature of these people. But they let them leave unscathed. The YY were now despondent. They had had five encounters with the Atuari, but had gotten nowhere with them in sharing Jesus. They cried out that night in des desperation, Father, we've done all we know what to do. We've risked our lives. We've given away all of our possessions. We've, been, we've endured humiliation. What else can we do to reach this people? Shortly after that, for the first time, the Atuari came to the YY. They came to their village. And when they saw the beads that the women were wearing, they snatched the beads off the women's bodies. Then they went into every house looking for beads, knives, and axes to take. They went into the YY gardens and dug up banana plants to take them back with them. After all this, at the end of the day, the Atuari were about to leave and the YY ran into their homes to get whatever sweet potatoes, bananas, and farina they had. They didn't want the Atuari to leave on empty stomachs. 
They had been praying for seven years for this opportunity to host the Atrawari. Four months went by when, without notice, at the height of the rainy season, when Indians rarely travel, 11 Atrawari burst into the Awawai village, demanding and belligerent. The women made food and drink and brought it to the Atrawari. As they served them, the Atrawari lifted up their skirts to see if they were hiding beads. They demanded knives and machetes. One greedily grabbed one from a YY and then it dropped on his foot, cutting it badly. The YY cleaned and bandaged the wound of the Atrawari. The purpose of their visit had been clear. They had come to take more beads and knives from the Atrawari, or from the YY. The YY did not hold back. They let them take whatever they wanted until they started to demand the YY women. The YY drew the line there. They strongly refused the Atrawari in their lustful demands. The YY sensed that the tensions were growing, so one believer started to shout out, to the church for singing! And all the men hustled the Atrawari to the church. At the same time, they whispered to the women to take the children and go hide in the village, in the jungle. They sang and they sang and they sang until the Atrawari were exhausted. And then the YY men gave them food and drink for their journey home. But the YY would not leave, or the, sorry, the Atrawari would not leave. And they stayed for several more days. This went on for years. YY seeking to love their enemy, the Atrawari, and being taken advantage of again and again and again. Years later, a group of about 20 Atrawari, for the first time containing women and children, came to the YY and said they wanted to stay with them for a year. It was a stretching time for the YY. The Atrawari were dirty, demanding, still asking for knives, and were ferocious eaters, which strained the YY's food supply. Included in this group were two orphaned boys. One of the Atrawari men confided to a YY man that when the two boys got older, he would kill them. The YY took these boys in and they were the first fruits of salvation among the Atuari. After several years of being loved and raised by the Atuari, these two, uh, being loved and raised by the YY, these two Atuari orphan boys came to faith. The YY, even as new believers, knew or rather learned how to love their enemies. They provide a living, vivid picture for us that loving our an enemies will require great sacrifice of our time, energy, possessions. It will include being mistreated and humiliated as repayment for this sacrificial love. If we're willing to love our enemies in this way, how much more should we be willing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with a sacrificial love? The most important command for you and for me is to love God and to love people. Listen while I read this summary from John 15, verses 9 through 14. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so challenged by how much you love us, the great extent that you would go to to sacrificially love us so that we would be able to live with you for all eternity. Lord, I pray that our response to this would be to obey you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as you have loved us. We pray for your grace and help in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.